Welcome. I'm Panayota Daphniotis, and I'm your host for an intellectual property podcast series brought to you by Dentons Canada. This podcast series covers a broad range of intellectual property topics on patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related IP disputes with an emphasis on the practical, giving companies of all sizes and industries the IP intel they should be thinking about. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There, you can access all of our intellectual property podcasts as well as an episode description for each topic and information about our speakers. We are currently living in unprecedented times and we hope all of our listeners are in good health and staying positive. It is worth mentioning that we, like many of you, are working remotely and so we are recording these podcasts from our respective new home offices and we are excited to be able to do so and bring this content to our listeners. And now, over to our podcast topic and speakers. Today's episode will cover the what, the where, and the how of the main types of IP litigation in Canada. Our speakers will explore where different intellectual property disputes can be adjudicated and will highlight some unique aspects to patent, trademark, and copyright disputes. With us today, we have Chris Zellius, who is a partner in our Edmonton office and part of the National Intellectual Property Group in Canada. Chris is a graduate of Harvard Law School and a registered trademark agent whose practice focuses on intellectual property disputes. He regularly handles litigation over patents, trademarks, copyright, and improper disclosure of trade secrets. Also with us today, we have Matthew Diskin, who is a partner in our Toronto litigation group and a member of the National Intellectual Property Group in Canada. Matt has litigated cases in the federal court and in various provincial superior courts and has litigated in disputes in all areas of intellectual property, as well as in cases relating to software and media matters. Matt has a particular focus in entertainment and media law, where he has been recognized by his peers as a leading lawyer in the country. And also with us today is Meredith Bacall, a senior associate in the firm's National Intellectual Property Group, as well as the Toronto Litigation Group. Meredith is a registered trademark agent, and as part of her litigation practice, Meredith represents a diverse client base on matters related to media, entertainment, technology, and defamation. She has appeared before many levels of court, including the Superior Court and the Federal Court, and has acted on several leading cases on Canadian copyright law. And now, over to our speakers for today's episode. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about intellectual property litigation. So I think the best way to start that would be to discuss the different judicial and arbitral bodies available in those sorts of disputes. Chris, can you tell us about federal, the federal court? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Meredith. Happy to happy to do that. I uh, 
I personally uh, have a strong preference whenever I'm starting an IP lawsuit to uh, go to the federal court. Uh, the most obvious benefit from my perspective is that you've got a, a stable of judges who have a real wealth of experience in dealing with uh, these kinds of disputes. Uh, the federal court has since the very beginning uh, served as the main court for dealing with IP litigation, and so it really has become uh, Canada's specialized court in what is, of course, a pretty specialized area. Uh, they know what they're doing, they know the leading cases, and this really helps to minimize unexpected surprises and the occasional decision that might, uh, might seem like it comes out of left field. Um, the, the second major benefit is that the federal court obviously has jurisdiction across the entire country, so once you get a judgment, it applies across Canada. Um, a provincial court only has jurisdiction over, over what happens in its own province, of course, so uh, an Ontario judge, for instance, uh, couldn't force the bad guys in a different province to stop copying uh, your brand or your invention, but the, the federal court can. Uh, so in my experience, whenever you have um, a defendant whose infringement spans uh, across more than one province, it's typically best to go to federal court uh, to deal with it. Um, there's a few limitations uh, and drawbacks. So if your case isn't focused on registered IP, like a patent, copyright, or trademark, but your focus is on maybe a common law tort, like uh, disclosure of a trade secret, uh, breach of confidence and the like, the federal court uh, doesn't have the power to deal with it and you'll have to go to uh, provincial court. So I, I, I think those are sort of the, uh, the main points I'd like to chat about for federal courts. I, I know Matt, you've got a wealth of experience in uh, uh, provincial court enforcement. So I don't. Um, I turn it over to you then to chat about that. Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, important to note that the provincial court has a couple of meanings, and so it's superior court that we're talking about is really being the relevant court when we get into IP-related issues. And so that's the constitutional court that's got the sort of broadest rights of any judge um, out there, uh, you know, as opposed to the statutory jurisdiction that you have in, in the federal court judges. So they, they have a, an ability to go nationally, but uh, they're, they're, they're somewhat limited. And, and when you have uh, cases where, 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 where contractual rights or, or uh, tortious interference through uh, passing off or, or other um, types of theft of property, intellectual property, trade secrets kind of things that, that you mentioned. That's where you need the, the Superior Court because they've got this, uh, this inherent jurisdiction. They can go to these, uh, uh, these places where, where the, the federal court just can't. So you have to be really careful about how you strategize in terms of picking your court and really figure out the relief that matters and, and consider even whether there may be circumstances where you need to go in both courts. And I've certainly experienced uh, situations where you have people trying to proceed in, in both the Superior Court uh, to force someone very locally to do something based on something that isn't pure uh, IP jurisdiction, not a trademark or a patent uh, or a copyright in which the the, um, the federal court has has the ability to to affect them. And, and uh, uh, so so that that's the tension. There's pros and cons to both, and it's really about I think adapting to the situation 
um, that you've got. And then, you know, the other thing we haven't talked about, and maybe uh, I'm going to ask you, Meredith, to, to flow into this a bit, is, is the arbitration world, because that, of course, can, can be relevant in, in IP. Thanks, Matt. So uh, just so our viewers know, or our listeners, rather, know arbitration is a private dispute resolution process, which is a nice alternative instead of going to court. So the way you end up there is either the parties to the dispute say, let's go, we can, we agree, let's adjudicate this privately, or the agreement that the parties entered into before there was a dispute, um, that's really the subject of the dispute, has an, arbitra an arbitration clause. So there are a lot of benefits to arbitration, one of which is that the dispute can be private as opposed to uh, the open court principle, which usually has a provision that allows anybody to go to the court, check out documents, so that's not absolute. Um, another benefit is that there is a specialization, both in terms of various arbitral bodies that exist, that have specializations. For example, the World Intellectual Property Organization um, specializes in IP disputes around the world. Um, but even if you're not in one of those uh, specialized arbitral bodies, you can select an arbitrator with a very nuanced uh, understanding of the law who, you know, practice in this specific area of IP for four years before becoming an arbitrator. Some disadvantages, of course, is that you have to pay for it. Um, and it can be costly and there could be one arbitrator or there could be three arbitrators or even more um, and you know you're paying for that as opposed to your tax dollars that have already paid for the court process that exists and uh, one last point is that enforcement can be a bit of a challenge um, whereas you know you have a court order you can go out and enforce that right away if you have an arbitrator's decision you have to actually go and apply to have that order enforced in the court so, and, you, and you got no right of appeal, isn't that right? So you have to think about that too. Yeah, well, I guess that, Matt, that's a good point. It also depends on the uh, agreement to arbitrate. So there's ways that you can set, quote, set aside an arbitrator's award, but if the agreement uh, that the parties entered into before arbitration uh, that has the arbitration agreement has a provision that says, you know, the decision of the arbitrator shall be final and binding, Man, oh man, is it ever hard to appeal that decision. Um, so you, when you're entering into agreements before uh, there's even a dispute or when there is a dispute and the parties agree, you, you have to think about all these sorts of points about um, which body you want to fight in and whether or not it helps or hurts you. So then just moving on from arbitration, there's one other body of an adjudicative nature that um, governs IP in Canada and that's uh, the various Canadian intellectual property offices and the copyright board. So there's the patent office that uh, determines whether or not uh, subject matter is patentable because you do need an actual patent to fight about patents. Um, so that process can, can take years to, to go through. There's similarly the trademark office that decides whether or not a trademark is registrable. Um, and right now, it takes about two years on, on the fast track to get a mark through. 
Um, and then the last is the Copyright Board, which determines uh, tariffs for various copyrighted works and how much it costs to access and, and use various works. And that's a whole other adjudicative body that could take years for a tariff to, to go through the process. So now that we know these different judicial arbitral bodies, uh, we'll talk about the three different traditional branches of IP. So I'm going to start with Chris, if he can tell us about trademarks. Uh, thanks, Meredith. Sure, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll tackle that at a pretty high level, and I'll talk about trademark infringement, and I'll also talk about trademark invalidation proceedings where you try to expunge uh, someone else's registered trademark. So a, a trademark infringement lawsuit uh, focuses on cases where uh, someone is using a brand too similar to your own. Uh, the key concept in infringement is consumer confusion. Um, the overall question that the court is going to have to answer is whether it's likely that consumers are going to become confused between two trademarks or brands because of their similarity. Uh, in other words, are they going to think that your products come from another company or vice versa because of that similarity? Uh, so to be clear, you don't need to have two identical brands in order to have infringement. They just have to be close enough to cause confusion. And uh, when I say close enough, I'm talking about close enough in a variety of ways. First and foremost, we're talking about similarity in terms of the look, feel, sound, and uh, idea uh, behind the trademark. And when the court carries out this comparison, uh, it's important to understand that they don't do uh, a close side-by-side -side view of the trademarks uh, with a focus on the little bits and bobs of how they're different. Uh, instead, they're looking at it from the perspective of the first impression of the average consumer uh, at issue. So it's the overall look and feel that matters, not uh, secondary aspects that might be a little bit different. Um, another important aspect of the similarity analysis is the nature of the businesses and the goods and services at issue. So you could have two identical trademarks, but if they're associated with very different types of goods, then there might be no infringement at all. Uh, a good example uh, would be the word Apple. One company might be using that brand to offer computers, uh, technology solutions and the like, while another might be offering music publishing services and because they're in different areas of commerce, there's no infringement even though they're using the exact same word. Um, another factor of importance is the channels of trade. So are the goods at issue going to be sold in the same stores, on the same shelves, right next to each other? If so, there's likely to be confusion or it's more likely that there's going to be confusion. Uh, if they're never going to be sold side by side, then it's less likely that there's going to be infringement. Um, so that's trademark infringement at a very high level. Uh, I, I would say, though, that you can't fully talk about infringement without also talking about uh, invalidation proceedings. Um, so one of the most common defenses we use in an infringement lawsuit is to counterattack the plaintiff's trademark and ask the court to rule that it shouldn't have been granted in the first place. Uh, this obviously creates a real risk for the plaintiff. Of course, they don't want to lose their trademark registration. 
There are uh, a lot of different ways to attack a trademark, and I won't go through them all in detail, uh, but probably the most common that I see is for the defendant to say that they're actually the ones that had first use of the trademark, so they're the ones with the first rights. Uh, they can then argue that given that fact, again, the plaintiff shouldn't have been granted their registration, and that it's actually the plaintiff who's infringing the defendant's rights. Uh, so in that case, an offensive or attacking posture can pretty quickly change to a defensive one uh, for this reason. And uh, probably in all things law and all things IP, uh, we strongly recommend that we always take a close look before we leap and make sure that we're not opening ourselves up to a counterattack uh, of that nature. Um, that's all I have on trademark litigation at uh, a high level. Uh, Matt, did you want to chat about patents? Happy to, happy to. Um, so patents are interesting because you can you can think of a few areas where patents become relevant, right? They can be relevant as an asset in a transaction. It can be relevant as it relates to a dispute over the royalties being paid for them. You can have ownership disputes, validation, enforcement. You can have all kinds of issues around patents. So again, back to the, the discussion we were having before, you've got to really think about just because something implicates a patent, that doesn't necessarily mean it, it, I need to go to the federal court. But traditionally, you do patent litigation in the federal mm -hmm. court. And, and because traditionally, the key patent right, the, the reason the patent system exists is you have a protectable and enforceable right over um, a novel invention. And, and so just to put this back at, at square one, a, a patent, of course, is a bundle of rights over the use of certain methods, processes, and designs to achieve a, an outcome that is new and unique and unforeseen and, and invented. So in exchange for that, you get the right to, to, to go out and stop people from doing it. And, and how you do that is, of course, by commencing um, an action traditionally in the federal court where you name the person who's completing the acts that constitute infringement of your patent and you seek an order that they pay you damages for any money they made doing that and you seek an order that the court uh, require they stop doing it and um, typically then when you sue for patent infringement the person who's uh, infringing the patent will come back and say uh, I'm not infringing your patent I'm doing it differently but in any event, your patent isn't valid, and that can be for any number of technical reasons. You know, some of the big ones are, for example, the the invention was already disclosed somewhere somewhere else at some point somewhere in the world, which is in a sense an impossible thing to know. Uh, if some somewhere in some library in Japan, there's a master's thesis that 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 shows the invention that your client thinks uh, that they that they created. So then you'll fight that out. Uh, the, ju the judge will have to go through a very technical analysis. And this goes to your point, Chris, as to why the federal court's so important because the law around patents is very tricky and um, you, need, you need someone who's sophisticated enough to understand how to, how to do that. And it's well beyond the scope of time up here to, to, to get into that. But so, so that's, that's the traditional place. And then, uh, you know, Problems, of course, with that are uh, are often uh, just the the costs and the time associates a very big and expensive procedure. Then then you you go into the other options where you have a, a just a patent as an asset, and then you can think of it like anything, like a house or a 
uh, you know, a bank account or, or anything else where, where the superior court is likely the one that you want to use and you want to use the one that has the closest jurisdiction over the entity that holds the title to the ownership of, 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 of the patent. And again, this is an area where, where you may need to, to ultimately uh, uh, consider, consider issues in the federal court in terms of transferring ownership. And uh, again, that's where you, have, you may have an area of overlap around that. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other patent-related uh, forums. I mean, again, arbitration is possible. You might want to arbitrate an inventorship issue, for example, because uh, that, that potentially could create risk to have information around that out in the public. Uh, you know, there are patent office actions that are available, uh, but that are very rarely used by third parties to attack uh, other uh, other people's patents. But, uh, you know, they can ask for basically reconsideration in the view that the patent office missed something, but it's, uh, they don't have, you don't have a lot of standing in those types of procedures um, as, as a complainant, and, and they don't tend to be the, the preferred, uh, the preferred approach. Um, and theoretically, you could just bring a freestanding application to impeach a patent in in uh, in the federal court as well. So that you have a lot of uh, tools, but most mostly you're going to be talking just a traditional patent infringement case before a federal court judge. Uh, again, not that the superior court couldn't do it, but because they they couldn't issue an order across that would be national, and they couldn't uh, they 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 couldn't. I mean, that's not fair at all. They don't have the ex specialized expertise that you do in patent law. So. Uh, hopefully that's somewhat of a fair description of things. Um, and now I think we must turn things over to the copyright question, right? I think that's the last big, uh, big thing, other than maybe confidential information. But uh, uh, Meredith, why don't you why don't you talk about copyright um, uh, enforcement and, and related litigation and how that looks and, and what what different uh, courts there are. Sure, thanks, Matt. So, generally, copyright protects the original expression, that's literary, dramatic, musical, or artistic original works. So, if someone goes out and takes a substantial portion of any of these original works, um, that owner can go out and sue them for copyright infringement. Um, so, there are a few options. Um, this is one of the heads of IP where you can sue provincially the Superior Court or federally in the federal court. And there are pros and cons in going in either court, um, depending on the types of allegations that are alleged. So if it's a straightforward, like, like the only real issue in dispute is copyright, then it makes sense to go the federal route because of all the reasons that Chris and, and Matt talked about, especially the, the way that the injunctive relief could be across the country. Um, but if there are other causes of action, which is often the case in a copyright dispute where there's, you know, the reason why the, per the plaintiff is alleging that there's uh, taking without their consent is because there was a contract at issue and then sort of a, by virtue of the other party breaching the contract, they're still using this copyrighted work um, and that's an infringement of their right. So it's really a contract dispute with a, a tag along copyright issue then you'd want to go in the provincial court because the the core of the dispute is contract, which the provincial or superior court should be dealing with, um, and the copyright kind of follows along and, and may end up being the most substantial head of damage, but um, just by virtue of the dispute, it makes sense to, to go provincially. 
Um, so that way you don't have a fight in the federal court about jurisdiction that, you know, this shouldn't be in the federal court, this should be in the superior court and delaying your, your action for, you know, six to 12 months. Um, there's also in copyright, um, good opportunities to have your matter adjudicated by an arbitrator. Specifically in the film context, there is uh, IFTA, which is the Independent Film and Television Alliance, uh, which often is chosen by parties early on to be the adjudicator of uh, distribution-related disputes. Um, so that sometimes is selected and is used for a distributor dispute in the film space, uh, but also at issue in, the, in that dispute is, is a copyright dispute. So that's just another way to go about it. Um, some unique things about copyright litigation is that a plaintiff at any time before the final decision is, is rendered can elect for general damages, which is, you know, I suffered X dollars by virtue of your misconduct, or can go for uh, statutory damages, which if the defendant has used their work in a commercial context, as opposed to their own you know, private home, can be anywhere from $500 to $20,000 per work. Um, the benefit of electing for those statutory damages is when you don't know how, what the actual scale of your damages are. So you're going against you know, a serial copyright infringer who ripped your DVD and made 20,000 copies. You don't know how many he, he did. He doesn't show up to trial, so you can elect for statutory damages and get compensated in that respect, and then you would also get the injunctive relief. Um, another benefit uh, of using one of those bureaucratic processes we talked about earlier, which is getting a copyright registration, is that it provides the presumption that you're the copyright owner in the work, so that way when you are at trial, you don't have to go ahead and prove that you're the owner of the work. You could just show up to court and say, look, this is my copyright registration. I own it. Now let's just talk about whether or not it was infringed. And then from that, once there is a proof of infringement, a common defense that a defendant will say is, no, well, yeah, maybe I took a substantial portion of their work, but if I did, it, it's fair dealing. My use is, is fair, so I'm not actually infringing your work. And so the court then says, okay, prove it. So you have to say, my use falls under one of these enumerated grounds. So it's it's for news reporting or education or parody. Um, and a, there are a few others. And if they do fall under one of those enumerated grounds, then the defendant has to also prove that the, the use is, quote, fair, meaning you're taking a, a certain point percentage of the work um, that really just depends on the size of the other work, whether or not there are alternatives to you using that work. So um, in a case that uh, Matt and I did in January, we were on for the defendants who made a documentary about a film. And so the court said, yeah, you were taking some clips from that original film, but the use of it was fair because there really was no alternative. You can't comment and criticize the subject film without using clips of that film. And what you did was fair because you were you were providing uh, commentary on those clips as well. So that's copyright litigation in a nutshell. Um, 
But before we, we end things, I think it'll be helpful to talk about confidential information. Thanks, Meredith. Yeah, so uh, we're talking here about uh, disclosure, unpermitted disclosure of, of trade secrets um, and any other sorts of confidential information that a business might have in any context. And um, I often view breach of confidence as being uh, kind of akin to uh, the patent area. So, you know, you've got two options with your company's um, exciting technology and technical innovations. One is to seek a, seek a patent registration, which will last you for uh, 20 years. After that point, it's anyone's fair game to effectively copy it, make use of it in the marketplace, make improvements on it, uh, and so on. Um, you could also, as an alternative, simply keep that information close to the vest um, and uh, in that way restrict your competitors from ever you know, gaining insight into your processes and solutions. Um, so for uh, a breach of confidence action based on trade secret, you have to uh, establish three things. Number one, you have to establish that the information, in fact, is confidential in nature, um, i.e. it is held close to the vest um, and it is proprietary and of value. Um, second, you've got to establish that when you disclose the information in point to the defendant, that it was disclosed in such a fashion that it was made clear to them that this was either implicitly or explicitly confidential and proprietary. Um, and then the third requirement you have to establish is that the defendant misused the information, used it for their own gain, used it outside the scope of uh, the permission you granted to them uh, initially. And so this is one that is typically dealt with either through, well, typically I would say most often dealt with in the provincial superior courts um, as opposed to federal court. Um, it, uh, if, if it's not related to any sort of registered IP, that is the only court that'll have uh, jurisdiction over it. Um, I suppose you could have, in some instances, uh, private arbitration uh, as a solution to deal with it. Um, but that typically, I'd say that's fairly exceptional. You would have to, again, have a, an arbitration clause uh, of the type that uh, Meredith discussed before. And, and you could certainly have that if you've entered into a a non-disclosure agreement that could be a could be a pertinent clause. Um, so those are the main forums. That's the really the main uh, the main things you have to prove to establish uh, a breach of confidence. Um, so I'll I've wrapped that up uh, pretty quick. I don't know if either you, Meredith, or Matt, have any further comments on that one. Yeah, Chris, I think that's right, and I think the whole point here is it's uh, it's a messy thing, and uh, in, in <laughs> when you get into the IP uh, dispute world, and um, it's all about being tactical and plotting through the the right course in terms of where where you, where you go and and uh, and the steps you take. So uh, you know, with that, I don't have anything further, and uh, Meredith, uh, unless you do, I I guess I will say thanks for 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 listening and. Uh, We'll catch you on the next podcast. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Denton's Canadian Intellectual Property Group has expertise that spans 
all areas of IP, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related disputes and litigation. Our speakers from this podcast episode or any other professional in our group would be pleased to speak with you about today's topic or any other IP topic of interest. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our IP series. Stay well.